Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to this week's Inside the Hive. I am Emily Jane Fox, and I am joined by my co-host, Joe Hagan. Say hi, Joe. Hello, everybody. I'm just going to interrupt and and just, I want to do that over. Welcome. To, I'm just kidding. Hi, guys. It's Nick Bilton. He's back. He's back. He's back. And a menace already. I know. Just interrupting, taking over the show. I'm going to kick you guys out of the Zoom room. Please. Change my virtual background. Just take it. Oh, Nick Nick did have some... Uh, funky backgrounds backgrounds. we're on on zoom while we do this i i'm gonna interrupt you interrupting me because we have major breaking news (laughs) major breaking news did you see yesterday that this is all over we have all been inside our houses for 40 some odd days the medical community has been in pure heroic chaos government from washington down to local governments have been up in arms, but fear not. Our Fresh Prince of Colorama, Jared Corey Kushner, has come to declare mission accomplished. I don't know if you saw this yesterday. He was interviewed on Where Else? Fox News. And he said, the medical crisis is behind us. This has been a huge success for the government. And this is all over. Mission accomplished. Job well done. You know, you know, like those those leaderboards that you see in um, like the sports things, like the the horse races where the horses are, you know, yes. they're going up and down. In my my head, I have this leaderboard of the people I hate the most on planet Earth, and it's like it's McConnell and Jared and Trump, <laughs> and it's you know, it's like sometimes people get kicked out of the administration, they get kicked off the leaderboard. Um, but Jared, Jared, uh, Jared came in second place yesterday just below Mitch McConnell who is a permanent first placer by the way because uh, he's such an absolute utter idiot did anything particularly get you yesterday or was it just his permanent status there I think it's what what is it the thing that gets me about Jared is that there are no repercussions for him like Trump actually kind of I think gives a shit what people think of him it's he's still a complete and utter buffoon and but there's there look he you know the the times had that big story last week about trump um and the all of the the befuddling that he's had in his press conferences and everything and he he was like i'm done i'm sure it was only done for a minute but but it had an impact for 5 minutes well, he right he deeply cares what people think about him yeah and jared i don't think it's i don't know if jared i think jared's arrogance is so astounding that he 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 tr- I think he's like a true sociopath that only thinks that like the words that come out of his mouth are are truth and just he doesn't care what people think. I'll tell you what it is. He is the kid and now the adult 
who's never had a consequence for anything in his entire life. He's never had to earn anything. He's never had to suffer any kind of repercussions for anything. And so when you've never had to say I'm wrong and I'm wrong mean anything to you, then it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't, your, your words have no weight. They have no consequence. And that is how we ended up where we are today. Just the total lack of uh, authority that he projects, the co- mm-hmm. lack of credibility, in contrast to what he's saying. Oh, we're finally in the on the back end of the health aspect of this situation we're in, as if there's any other aspect. I mean, there's the economic aspect, but he's so—you uh, can't take him seriously. I, I automatically see, when I see him, Pinocchio has become a boy. That's what I see. You know, he's just I like, would just— I just really would like Jared Kushner to walk into an emergency room in Brooklyn right now and tell all of the first responders, the nurses, doctors, uh, EMTs working in that emergency room that we are on the back end of this health crisis. Until he does that, I would I would just like a live stream of him sitting cozy in his beautiful house in Calorama. What's so astounding is when you say that, I watched this video on the Washington Post site where they had a lot of doctors from around the country um, record videos, you know, FaceTimes and Zoom, so on and so forth, of them talking about, like, where they are. And what was so insane was the all of them had these marks on their faces from wearing these N95 masks mm. for, for 18 hours. And one doctor said, you know, like, you've got these people out there that are saying, oh, we were, you know, it's slowing down. He's like, but you, you don't realize like we're like, we're going to have to dress like this in our hospitals for, for the foreseeable future. Like we, you know, people will start to go out a little bit and things like that and, and society, but it's not changing in here. Like the, 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 the fundamental life as a doctor in a hospital and a nurse is changed forever. And, and I think like when you put that on the back of Jared being a wet noodle on Fox News, uh, it just makes me want to slap him in the face, quite frankly. Well, as we talk about how you're going to slap someone in the face, but but more importantly about <laughs> how people's <laughs> jobs and lives are going to change going forward, I can't imagine a world in which after all of this and after we have seen that everyone can, in fact, mostly do their jobs from home. I don't think that offices will come back ever fully in a way that they totally were. It, it hasn't been necessary for a long time. There's now proof of concept that it's not necessary. And you have written a great piece for Vanity Fair this week about what it is like to work from home and actually be productive. And I thought it was actually a very useful how-to. I took a lot Thanks of it so to much. heart since I've read it. Please tell us what we should do to be our most productive selves while we're stuck at home. So I, I've been like battling this work from home thing for, for quite honestly, for two decades. Um, I how you old know, I are you? To, I'm 95. <laughs> um, I take these. Uh, I take chlorocloxalin pins, uh, <laughs> and it it reverses aging. Um, uh, Nick Button. Um, no, I, I uh, when I started at the New York Times, you know, shortly after 9/11, I. Um, I I worked in the building, but I my job I was in the research labs there, and and I could work from home, and so I did, and um, and and then fast forward to me becoming a reporter there, and I was I was working on my first book, 
and I remember trying to kind of juggle writing stories and then writing the book. And I lived in a little tiny one-bedroom apartment in New York, as I think all bedroom one-bedroom apartments in New York are tiny. And I, it was just, it was really, really, really hard. And so I was like, okay, I for a living, I interview people that are experts in different fields around. And I was doing a lot of tech reporting then, and um, and talking to neuroscientists about user interface and and blah blah blah. And I started, I kind of started asking everyone every time I would do a story. I just kind of was like, hey, do you have any advice? And and I came across this this professor um, and uh, doctor at UCLA, Gary Small, who was the first person who said it. And he was saying that you have to kind of trick your brain when you work from home or in any setting. You have to kind of trick your brain into understanding that it is somewhere different. It is doing some, some, something different. And he was saying, and this is true. I mean, we all know this. Like, um, our, we're we're pretty lazy. Our brains are pretty lazy. Like, we are designed to to find the the quickest path to get something done, um, from a neurological perspective. And he he said, so when you sit down and you, if you are doing something in repetition, like let's just say you pick up your phone. Here's a perfect example, actually. You know when you um, you pick up your phone and you um, you organize if you ever organize your apps, so you delete some and like. You're instinctively, when you pick up your phone the next time and you go to a certain app that you've gone to all the time, you will press in that area on your phone, even though it's not there. Sure. And and it's also like when you've been reading on a on a on a touch screen and you're scrolling, and then you pick up a, a physical thing and then you try to scroll on it. It's because our brains are just lazy and they're like, oh, that's the thing we've just been doing. We must be doing that. So his his argument was when you're working on something. Um, you're going to associate, your brain is going to associate yourself with the, the thing that you were doing before in that exact spot with that exact device, with what, whatever it is. So he said, find two different places to work from in your home, even if it's two different chairs and find cues and create cues specifically that are designed to help your brain understand, oh, this is this thing. And that is that thing. And so in my case, it was these are the New York Times stories I have to write, and this is my book that I have to write, and it's two completely different styles of writing. So I sat on – I remember I used to sit on this green cushioned chair when I would work on my book, and I even – he told me get a candle and stick it next to your table that smells a certain way and then put a different one somewhere else. Like anything you can do that um, that says that, – that it fast-tracks your brain to say this is the thing I'm working on here and this is the thing I'm working on there. That's fascinating. And, no, it's yeah. truly fa- – and it actually truly does work. And I've made a – I've been so strict with myself about about the devices I use too. Like I try not to ever work on my phone because your phone is designed for you goofing off. It's I can't not believe – I read that last night and I was like, all I do is fuck around on my phone. And then do you try to work on your phone? Yeah, but, but out of so necessity. So how, how's your brain going to – Out of necessity. Not anymore, but in my, my normal life – uh, I have to do so much work on my phone. I mean, I would I would oftentimes be filing stories from the backseat of a car on my phone. And so it was it was out of necessity. I'm not joyfully yeah, writing no, a story it. on my phone. But yeah, I mean, I feel like my my everything is intertwined in my phone. And reading that made me feel like, oh, I am I am so woefully wrong about that. As somebody who's been doing this for, you know, working at home for the last 10 years, 95 or, years or, or more. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny how I've sort of developed what you're exactly what you're talking about almost 
uh, out of necessity and learning it on my own. And I have like five different places around my house that I rotate around to write on, you know, and if I'm not really taking it too seriously in the early stages of a draft of a story or something, I'm sitting on the couch, but then it gets serious and I'm standing up at the, you know, in the kitchen with the, you know, if you're standing, then you have gotten serious, right? Then, then you're not messing around. No, the, the other thing that's been interesting too is, you know, I, I recently started using the, the iPad pro, um, and I've done this bef- before. What I used to do was I would type on my computer and then I would save the file and I would pick up an iPad or something and I would read what I wrote, especially for writers. And you get like a different perspective on it, right? Because you're holding it differently. You're sitting somewhere differently. And so now I've been using the iPad Pro. They have that magic keyboard, which is pretty magical, I got to say. Um, and it's like probably one of the best keyboards I've ever written on. And so I can write if I'm writing a story or a feature and then I can, I just plop the screen off and then I go sit somewhere and I read it and you kind of just get a completely different perspective on it and the touch screen and all that stuff, which is great. And, um, and this I is found not that, you sponsored know, we, by Apple, by the way. No, no, no. I, it's here's the reason I'm. You could do it with a, any tablet. It's the 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 reason I'm saying this is because I found that this theory of like of where your brain is and what your brain is doing is a is is it applies to the technology we use. We rely on these technologies to do our work. They are everything to us. We don't write on our stories on a notepad. Like we use our computers, and and I and I think that the way you use these devices, you have to kind of apply the same philosophy and the same thinking. This is why I don't write on my cell phone. It's why I, you know, I try to designate certain places and certain devices that do certain things, and and. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's been a but it, and it, it truly honestly I, it it all does work. Um, and if you if you're like so many people tell me they I procrastinate all the time, and I, that's because you your brain wants to because of the places that you, that you put it in. Well, the one thing I read in your article uh, that I uh, one thing I just want to um, you know push against was the idea that I need to get up. And put on a suit and tie and get dressed. <laughs> and this is this I will not do. That's where I draw the line. Well, that's the the, the lead of the the piece I wrote is I remember years ago meeting this this um, editor who told me the story about one of his writers, this older gentleman who uh, who every morning worked from home. Every morning would wake up, put on a suit and tie, a bow tie, walk to his walk into his home office and write and it was his way of it was you know i think we all right. develop these things like you said joe um it was his way of telling his brain okay now it's work time and i'm going to dress for work and i'm going to act like i'm at work even though right. i'm at home um and and the, the last thing that i also found super fascinating was um i spoke to this woman marianne wolf she's a neuroscientist she wrote this amazing book called um, proust and the squid and and she did all this research around reading and um and we all think that, you know, reading is this highfalutin thing that we all do and we're so wonderful. And, like, we were never designed to read. Like, her research found that the human brain hijacks itself. It, it, it uses parts of the brain where we used to say, oh, my God, that's a snake or that's a rock or that's a cave. And we have applied it to, to, to reading. To, we've developed it. We've hacked our brains to do it. And, and the part about that that I think brings us all back home is that, we're constantly kind of hacking our brains to try to tell them what to do so that we can do the thing that we want to do in this moment. And and this is just another example of it. Well, this wow. was really interesting, incredibly useful. Everyone should go read it on VanityFair.com. Dot com. I will say that 
I'm inspired to do better and be better after this. I think I wrote my entire <laughs> book from my bed in pajamas. So uh, yes, here's to the next, next one. Next time you got to put on a three-piece suit. I'd rather die. I haven't put on anything that's not stretchy or drawstring in, in 45 days. But <laughs> there's, there's, there's always tomorrow, right? There's, there's always, always tomorrow. Okay, speaking of productivity, tell us very quickly about your very interesting, detailed, juicy story about Twitter that we have in this month's uh, Vanity Fair. What do we need to know? Uh, so I have been writing about working from home for, for over a decade, and I have also been writing about Twitter for over a decade, which makes me sad. Uh, and, um, and I have another, another segment in that drama. It's almost like, um, it's like a, it's like, I always think of it as like one of those Spanish novellas that's been on for like 35 seasons. Um, and at this point, you're the new, all my children. Yeah. The, the like husband is sleeping with the maid and you know, it's, you know, anyway, not that I watch those things. Um, (laughs) so Jack Dorsey is a very colorful character who, who a lot of people think kind of lucked out into the positions that he ended up in. Um, I think that there's a little bit of luck and a, a little bit of conniving that's gone on and, and, uh, you know, uh, and some talent and it's a little bit of all of it, but, but the main gist of the piece is essentially that we live in a, a time where, um, the cult of the founder is dying. Um, they used to be this, this era where, you know, thanks to Steve jobs specifically that, you know, you would, build a startup in your parents' garage and it would become a multi-trillion dollar company and, 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 and you would change the world and put a dent in the universe. And that, that for a long time, Wall Street couldn't actually argue with this founder mentality because it always proved true with the, with the money. What's happened over the past couple of years is you've had, you've had these founders that are all lunatics and they have these weird eccentric things that they do that have gone too far. You've had Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, who turned out it was a $9 billion scam. You've got Travis Kalanick from Uber, who was running the company like a frat bro. You've got uh, WeWork and all these different companies, all these different places that are that have fallen as a result of um, founders that probably shouldn't have just been allowed to reign free as they as they did. And um, and my piece essentially points out that Twitter has languished under under Jack Dorsey. This is now his third reign as CEO, essentially. Um, at the company, and the um, growth is has putting aside what's happened yesterday. They had their their earnings report. Growth has been slow. Um, profits have been flat. You know all these different things, and um, and you have Elliott Management, which is this Wall Street um, hedge fund that is coming in to try to try to shake things up. And so the story really talks about how um, how they've come in because they're fed up and they see an opportunity, and a lot of Wall Street. Uh, uh, investors are fed up with Twitter and see an opportunity. And Dorsey is still using this cult of the founder argument to say why, that's why he should be running the company. Um, you know what's interesting so. to me when you talk about the cult of the founder, and, and, and then I want to ask you what you think is going to happen with Twitter, but Elon Musk yesterday was on Tesla's oh, earnings God. call and Jesus. railed against the fact that we've been listening to these stay-at-home orders and basically said we're living in a lockdown society where the government is telling people that they can't leave their homes and what a terrible thing this is and 
And that to me is the perfect example of what you're talking about. This crazy eccentric guy who's using a very powerful pulpit to to put into the mainstream these very fringe, very dangerous ideas. And I don't I don't think that there's going to be tolerance for that kind of bullshit anymore. Well, I think that uh, that Elon Musk is this special a special you know strain of being a jerk um and and self-aggrandizement he's you know i mean he the reason he's doing that is because his his california fremont plant was shut down because of the stay-at-home stuff and he was trying to break the rules and have people go to work anyway and it's like for elon elon musk only gives a shit about elon musk that is there is no one else on this planet that he cares about other than himself he was upset and, that his his bottom line yeah. is impacted by the stay at home. And you want to know something? Here's and I was I'm, and I and I've been thinking about maybe doing a piece on 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 this like a feature workshop on, it here. Yeah, I'm workshop it here. When this all started, um, Elon was out there tweeting how it was all bullshit, right? And um, this, you know, 50 days ago or um, two months ago, that it was all bullshit and it was overblown and like it was just silly and and. And I know people that worked with him and have were and it's someone that was in a meeting with him where he was literally telling them how he had canceled all of his trips to Asia because of it. So there are two versions of Elon Musk. There's the version that he tweets about, and then there's the version of the real Elon Musk that is clearly scared of this virus. And so it's just such bullshit that he goes out there and says and does all these things and then acts completely different behind the scenes. And it's so irresponsible. Um, but he doesn't care because it's the Elon Musk show. Well, on that note, let's talk. We're not going to let him take over this show. No, we now, are not. Though um, if he wants to come on. He, open invitation. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll send him an invitation and we'll uh, let Nick, we'll unleash Nick on him. <laughs> So, uh, you know, as we record this, you guys are on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. It's getting to be lunchtime. I'm getting hungry. I think of food. The next thing I think of is Danny Meyer. And uh, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about the interview that we're going to be hearing. Yeah, I'm really excited for you guys to hear. I spoke with Danny Meyer, who is... Uh, the founder and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group, which owns 20 restaurants. He also is a guy who came up with Shake Shack. I'm sure you guys have heard of it, and I'm sure you guys have particularly heard about it now in the news as Shake Shack both got and returned a $10 million loan under the PPP Payroll Protection Plan in the CARES Act. It's been all over the news, and we got talking about why they took it, why they returned it, uh, what he really thinks about what government is doing for the restaurant business. Sneak peek, he does not think it's the right thing, and he thinks that there's much more to be done. I'm really excited to go to go through it with you guys. Um, send us your feedback. Tell us what you think about it. Uh, I, I'm excited for you guys to hear it, my, my co-hosts here. We talked all about what's happening to the restaurant business now, but what will happen to it in the future. And... It's really interesting. It seems from his perspective, and it's a perspective that I think comes from a lot of experience, like we are not going to have dining room experiences like we've had in the past and that things will forever look different, but certainly in in the the near future. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. When you you say that, is is that 
are we talking about like in the next 12 to 18 months as this thing continues until we get a vaccine or are we talking about inevitably forever that the entire dining experience will change? Well, I think both. I think obviously until there is a vaccine, the dining experience is a, is a nearly impossible proposition. You first have to get to the point where you feel comfortable sending anyone who worked for you to work, right? So yeah. he said he's not going to open up his restaurants in in any way until he is confident that sending someone who works for him to work will not get them sick, which I think is very responsible. Um, Once we get to that point before there is a vaccine, he said that there's the business is delivery because you can't open your restaurant and, and, turn any kind of profit if you're operating at 50% capacity. And most restaurants at best, if they're following the guidelines for for proper distancing, will open at 50% capacity. They're going to be losing their money if they open their doors that way. So I think you'll start to see a really robust, even more robust delivery takeout system from restaurants that haven't been able to figure that out in the next 18 or so months, however long it takes to get this vaccine. And then after that, you have to think that most uh, we're we're sort of starting with a blank slate. Most restaurants are not going to f- be able to afford to open back up after they've been closed yeah. for two years, and so the ones that do return will have to be backed by some real strong financial backing, or banks will have to step in, and landlords will have to be way more fair than they've been in the past, particularly in major cities who've been gouging their restaurants on on their leases for years now. And I think what we talked about is that tastes in diners might change, that there will be less of an emphasis on this frou-frou fancy food that's people in the back of the kitchen using tweezers to perfect everything. (laughs) I think we're all used to now home cooking that's tasty and delicious and not fancy. And I think that the emphasis to me, at least what I think I will want if we are ever able to go back to restaurants, is I just want to be around a table with my friends. I don't care really that the food looks precise and beautiful. I care that it's delicious, but mostly I'm going to care about the company around the table. And so I think yeah. that I think that the whole concepts of dining will change. Danny Meyer thinks that the concepts around dining will change. So let's get into the interview, shall we? Well, thanks for having me on, guys. It was really fun. What a treat. And I'll be back soon. Please, anytime. Come back, come back. I am so excited for our conversation today. I am very lucky, and we are all very lucky, that we are here with Danny Meyer, the founder and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group, which boasts 20 restaurants where you've undoubtedly celebrated a birthday or 20 Uh, The restaurant group boasts 28 James Beard Awards and three Michelin stars. He is also the man behind a little burger company you may have heard of called Shake Shack. And he's been in the news quite a bit recently as the restaurant industry has been hit particularly hard by our changing world. So we have much to talk about. Danny, I'm so grateful for you sharing a little bit of your time and your world with us here at Inside the Hive. Welcome. Well, I'm really glad to speak with you, Emily. So talk to me about where you are right now. You're, I'm assuming you're not in New York City. That's right. We left the city, my whole family actually, on March the 13th. Uh, we had already made the decision to close all of our restaurants that earlier that week. And uh, it's just been the most surreal existence. Um, we feel very, very uh, fortunate that that we all had a place to go to. We we've had uh, we have four kids, and and one of our daughters has a boyfriend, so there's seven of us. Full and, house. Uh, full house. Uh, 
lots of family time. I'll say that in my entire life, going back to when I was growing up in St. Louis, I have never had seven consecutive weeks of family dinner every single night. Who has? That's crazy. It, it is. And it's, you know, you, you constantly at this time, uh, I think, are given the opportunity to to feel bad about a lot of things, but you're also given the opportunity to sort of find find moments to feel good about. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the days are intense. The days are intense with making choices and decisions that impact uh, people and sure. and communicating uh, in a way that we're not used to communicating. And, and also, I think, you know, in my, in my business, if, if I talk about something I miss, it's, it's being with people. I think that, mm. I think people who chose to go into the, the world of hospitality didn't just do it because they love food. That, obviously that's, it's not a bad place to start, but you know, you, you love seeing the smile on people's face when, when you serve the food and, and you love seeing the, the people you work with. And, and it's just, it's zoom meetings only go so far. It's, it's been a, it's been a godsend in terms of being able to communicate, but it it only appeals to two of our five senses and uh, sure. miss the other three. Well, you're also, your days were crazy before this. You would go from restaurant to restaurant, neighborhood to neighborhood, all over, up and down across Manhattan every single day to stay in one place, to not be visiting the places of business. What a shift in your day-to-day routine. It's, it's true. You know, when we get the uh, report on the iPhone that talks about how many steps you've taken relative to the past. Nothing makes you feel worse. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm, I'm trying to take long walks every evening uh, with my wife and, and we run together on the weekends. And, and yet every day it reminds me that my steps are 25% less um, even with all that extra taking long walks. Well, you don't realize how much you walk when you're in the city. I'm also out of the city and you just don't, you take for granted the fact that you're walking on any given day, five to 10,000 steps just to do your normal routine getting to the office. Exactly. And and as close as many of our restaurants are, primarily in the Union Square and, and Gramercy Park neighborhood, with, with, with exceptions, uh, we've got, uh, we had, we, we will have again, uh, the modern uptown and, and Manhattan all the way downtown, you 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 just wouldn't believe. You know, you can easily put on two or three miles a day just going back and forth, as you said. Of but course. Anyway, uh, we'll get back to that. And I think the thing that's pulling me through, and, and hopefully pulling a lot of people through, is that if you if you don't believe that this is the thing that's going to end the world, and I certainly don't, then you say, all right, well, in that case. There's going to be some point at which it's over. And then then you say, all right, well, how did we use our time? Who were we? What did mm. we choose to do? Um, what decisions did we make? What changes did we make? Um, and I, I'll, I'll just share, Emily, that that's occupying a lot of, of my time and my heart and my mind. And um, I'm really trying to train myself to think with my heart and feel with my mind because almost every single decision requires both. It's it's amazing to hear you talk. I, I've heard you. I've now 
in, in preparation for this, I've listened to you do a lot of interviews and I've read a lot of interviews with you and you speak about your business in such an emotional way, in a way that's rare for a lot of CEOs. Well, I mean, I, I've been doing this since I was 27 years old and um, actually really since I was 26 years old, which is a long time. And, and I don't think anyone goes into the restaurant business because it's easy. And I don't think anyone goes into the restaurant business saying, what a great high margin industry that is. I think you go mm. into it because you love the, the rewards of being with people in the service of people. And when you, when you find that, as we have, that truly uh, you have to find a, a completely different way of trying to be in the service of people because you can't bring people together um, safely, which is where we are today. And you can't even employ people safely, which is where we've been. It just, it, it is emotional. And, and uh, you know, this is something I've said, but it is the most bizarre thing to literally overnight go from striving to be an exceptional employer to to saying, well, I guess all I can do right now is to be an effective unemployer. And what are all the ways we can serve people even if we don't have work for them? Sure. And how can we how can we more quickly get them back to work, which is really which is that's what occupies my mind. But one thing that I think is such a hallmark of being a guest in one of your restaurants is the hospitality, is the niceness. You have this gorgeous, delicious meal and you have people who are so kind to you, serving you that meal and welcoming you in in the front of the house. How did hospitality become your thing? It's a great question. Um, first of all, you, 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 you can't fake it. Hospitality is genuine or, or it's not. And the example I've given people in the past is I'll, I'll never forget, you know, when I was a kid, cause my dad was in the travel business. We, we traveled all the time and, and we could, by the time I was 20, until I was 21, I could actually travel anywhere Pan Am flew for $44 round trip. So I got to be a very, very experienced um, traveler. And the thing that drove me crazy is you'd get off the airplane and the flight attendant would be standing right outside the cockpit. And, you know, 80 times they would go, bye, bye, bye-bye, bye now, bye-bye, bye, mm-hmm. bye, bye. Not looking anyone in the eye, not meaning it. It was basically like, can you please get off so we can get this airplane clean for the next flight? You cannot, you just can't fake hospitality. And and I, I really believe that there is something to the experiences I had growing up in, in St. Louis um, in where the restaurants were not really all that yummy, but where the people were always pretty darn nice. And I just remember the feeling that I had, the great feeling I had when my parents would take us out to dinner and it wasn't a fancy place, but I loved when the the owner of the restaurant would recognize my parents. It made me feel important that my parents were recognized. It made sure. me feel important, you know, that if a if a restaurateur would, you know, ask me a question that made me feel like a human being and not just like a another passenger on the airplane. 
all of this makes sense to someone who has spent a lot of time in your dining rooms. And this attention to detail and this attention to customization and making people feel like you know them and that you care to know them is such a hallmark of what you do at Union Square Hospitality Group. But it's so the opposite of what I think about when I think about fast casual or enlightened fast food as you do with Shake Shack. So to have both of those under your umbrella is so fascinating to me. Well, people are people. And, you know, the the overarching philosophy of Union Square Hospitality Group, which is where Shake Shack was born in uh, 2004. Um, As a hot dog stand, right? It was a hot dog cart in, Ma- in Madison Square Park, really as an experiment to, to be part of an art project uh, to make the park safer for people. Mm. And we launched it, ironically, uh, the summer of 2001. Um, obviously right before 9-11. Wow. And there were lines and lines and lines of people to get these Chicago-style hot dogs we were cooking. And the reason I I did it, the reason I agreed to do it as part of this uh, piece of art called I Love Taxi, was I wanted to try to prove that hospitality mattered, even with something as, you know, run-of-the-mill as a hot dog cart, that it wasn't just for fancy restaurants. And so our philosophy has always been a people-first philosophy, and I wanted to test this thing we call enlightened hospitality on a hot dog cart. So we decided we're going to staff it with uh, out-of-season coat checkers so they wouldn't have to wait till the fall when the weather got cold in order to make money. And Mm. the the reason that we chose Chicago hot dogs, Chicago-style hot dogs, is because they have eight classic toppings, and we wanted to try to – we wanted to see if we could remember – the preferences of, you know, of every guest who, who is coming to a hot dog cart. Oh, she's the person who likes everything but mustard. And he's the guy that likes everything except green pickle relish, blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, it worked. And, um, and then, you know, the summer afterwards, the art project had come and gone and there was a new piece of art in Madison Square Park. But the community was, you know, besides being emotionally uh, depressed, the city was was in a, a pretty strong recession the summer of 2002. And we kept getting these calls, please bring back the hot dog cart, even though it's not part of that piece of art anymore. And so we did it in 2002. We did it again in 2003. We were giving our profits to the Madison Square Park Conservancy, which was simple because we were losing money every year. And, um, and then by the time... <laughs> 2004 came around, uh, we got the idea of of trying to create what I had, I had read about in uh, Billy Shore's uh, brilliant book called The Cathedral Within, this notion of a community wealth venture. And it would be a for-profit business that would, would create wealth for its community. What did that mean? So I decided to try out this thing I had just read about in the Cathedral Within. And, and so we we got permission, and I'm telling you, this is speaking with at least six different city agencies, to create a permanent kiosk where there had once been a hot dog cart or adjacent to it for Madison Square Park. And I would give the uh, I would give this kiosk, uh, my mom actually helped me quite a bit. Uh, philanthropically to the park. So the park would become the landlord. We would own the business. And if it worked, 
The goal was to attract people to using the park morning, noon, and night. That would keep the park safe. And then furthermore, since the park would be the landlord, the park would collect a percentage of every dollar spent there as Mm. rent. And there was zero intention whatsoever that Shake Shack would ever become, quote unquote, a business. We had no idea if it was going to work or not. I mean, how many hot dogs can you sell? And, you know, one day I just scribbled down on a piece of paper, a a menu um, that added some things to the hot dogs. And the the menu that Shake Shack serves today uh, is about 80% of an overlap to what I scribbled down that day. Wow. What's different? Um, What is different? Actually, not not much. There were hot dogs, crinkle cut fries, cheeseburgers, shakes, frozen custard, concrete. Uh, One thing we never got to was tuna burgers. That's something that I had in mind because that was something we were selling a lot of at Union Square Cafe in those days. Interesting. But, um, and the reason for that is there just isn't enough room in the shack for a separate griddle and you don't want to be cooking fish on the same griddle where you're cooking uh, burgers. So anyway, the it wasn't until five years after the first Shake Shack that we opened a second one. It makes total sense uh, the way you're first describing when you're starting out and you're having the employees there remember people's toppings and that's how you keep the hospitality in a hot dog stand. You now have, I think, 189 locations across the United States and some internationally. You have some in, in ballparks. Um you have 8,000 employees or had 8,000 employees before our, our current Brave New World. How do you keep that hospitality when the business is so sprawling and you have so many employees and so many customers? Look, there, there's no way you can customize every single experience, even in a fine dining restaurant. You certainly cannot customize every experience in a, a fast casual or a fine casual experience. But you can still take the same approach to, to trying like crazy to hiring people who have a high HQ. And so when you order food from someone at Shake Shack, my hope is that the batting average should be higher than, than most other um, quick serve restaurants in terms of having someone who's genuinely happy to see you and who genuinely wants you to be happy uh, with, with what they're serving. Sure. Sure. I mean, the, the idea of of revolutionizing service in that industry is fascinating to me. And I think that you've made a lot of decisions throughout your career that were just 10 steps ahead of where your peers were or other people in the industry were. You banned smoking in Union Square Cafe, what was it, a dozen years before the city made everyone stop smoking yep. in restaurants. And I think a perfect example of that is when you eliminated tipping at your restaurants five years ago. I think you said in an interview I, I read that you it would either be a gigantic success and that others would follow or it would be a whopping failure. And I'm wondering now, five years on, where we fall on that scale. Uh, right at the 50-yard line. Mm. Yeah, it's It's been successful in so many philosophical ways. It's been way less successful if if the metric is who else has adopted it. Sure, you're you're still out alone on a limb on this one. Yeah, not entirely alone, but we're kind of uh, if the tree doesn't have nearly as much fruit as we had hoped at this point. Um, Yeah, it's it's a very very challenging thing to 
uh, in one stroke, try to change a deeply held American culture of of tipping people, and a and I would also say, from a business standpoint, a deeply um, appreciated notion that restaurants only pay for half of their labor, sure. and their their menu the menu prices in restaurants don't actually tell you the full story. And and it's it's one of the great conspiracies of all time, which is that when you come to one of our restaurants, actually when you when you go to a typical restaurant where there's tipping, you know that the restaurant is only paying for half of its staff. You know that the menu prices uh, don't include what you will be taking out of your pocket at the end of the meal, which is an additional 20%. And you're okay with that. And it, it's it's really worked out quite well economically uh, for a lot of people, but I would say that if who has it worked about, out well for? Well, it's worked out. It's worked to help to uh, bolster what is otherwise a business that that has incredibly thin margins, and because there are six hundred and sixty thousand restaurants in America, I'll just take New York for example where there's 26,000 restaurants, the downward pressure on your ability to raise prices is great because, you know, there's a lot of really good chefs out there and there's a lot of really good roast chickens and a lot of really good pasta. And I don't think the average guest wants to, uh, who, who's, who's looking up your menu on Google search and sees that your roast chicken is $32, whereas the other guys is, 26. And there's just not time to explain that the other guys is going to be $32 also by the time you tip. Sure. So it's, just, it's, it's a hard set of economics. Um, now, where I think it's been incredibly successful is that our philosophy going into it was this system has done a really, really good job of of helping tipped employees to make a lot more money over the years. Cause guess what? Every, every year menu prices go up and the tip is just a, a multiplier of that, but it's also done a devilishly good job at keeping hourly rates down for non-tipped employees because, um, and, and therefore the gap between what a, uh, the person who, cooks your food can make and what the person who delivered your food can make sure is just way way too high so, so has it has it has it benefited the people who are making the food people in the kitchen people who are working who would not have gotten tips has it benefited those people in your restaurants barely and mm. and this is where I put the the marker right on the 50 yard line it um, it's benefited people in that they have to work many fewer hours than they once did to make the same amount of money. They're not right. making more money right now, but they don't have to work overtime in six days. Uh, and it's benefited even tipped employees because they no longer have to work Saturday night away from their family or Friday night away from their family in order to make a living because they get the same pay whether they work Monday night or Friday or Saturday. And I would also say that uh, in this this very, very sad period of time that we're in where 100% of all of our hourly employees are 
are laid off and are on unemployment insurance, we hope right now, mm-hmm. that the W-2 that they're showing to the um, to the agency are much higher than if they had been tipped employees, if that makes mm. sense. Because yeah. we're, we're paying an hourly rate that is dramatically higher than what a tipped employee would get. Mm, that make that that makes sense, and that's that's interesting. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> As we sort of start to veer into talking about the COVID part of all of this, you brought up something that I wanted to touch on. You you talked about how razor thin the margins are in the restaurant industry. And one of the things that I think, one of the blessings that I can take out of what we're going through right now is that people, I think, are way more willing to talk about the ways in which their industries were struggling before in a way that they, they were maybe too proud or too embarrassed or too let's put on a brave face to talk about. And now people are, are much more open. I, I read in the New York Times the, the Gabrielle Hamilton, who is a chef at Prune, a wonderful restaurant in New York. She wrote an incredible story about what it was like to close her restaurant and what it will be like to maybe reopen it and what the business is actually like. And it stuck with me. I've thought about it a lot over the last couple of, of days. I'm wondering what you think about this dialogue that has opened up in the restaurant community about just how tough it was to get by before all of this. Well, I think it's it's absolutely spot on. Um, I'm a I've read the article; it was beautiful. I'm a big fan of Gabrielle. Um, Anne Prune was one of my favorite restaurants where I would spend even spend a couple of my birthdays there. Mm. And it's really sad, and that. That is not just prune. That's that's happening in restaurants across America, and I think it's it's spot on because our industry has been broken. Uh, eliminating tipping was a way for me to try to address something that was not working in restaurants. It's not right to say we put our people first, but only some of our people. Mm. Uh, but e- so even even before COVID, I would say that that. Uh, the very model on which restaurants have been built, and it, it's true that that my full service restaurant experience is definitely skewed to New York City, but it was it was always it was always kind of based on a few things. Uh, real estate real estate prices have just gone up through the roof. It's so crazy. When I, when I opened Union Square Cafe, the rent on Union on Sixteenth Street was eight dollars a square foot for the first three years. And so you could actually, you could make a real estate bet in Manhattan 
and you could you could put what is essentially a manufacturing plant, also known as a kitchen, with an expensive <laughs> showroom, also known as a dining room. You could you could actually afford to to put it in Manhattan, and you could make money today. Uh, and largely, I think um, you know we all know that. Uh, banks and drugstores ended up on every corner in the last decade, and and that uh, actually encouraged a lot of landlords just to leave their space fallow until they got their price. Well, guess what? With restaurants that you know at best are going to be at fifty percent uh, capacity in the next handful of months, they're just not going to be able to pay those kind of rents. And then, so what? So yeah. so what happens? So what happens is that. We need to have a real conversation, and I would say there is a third player, which is which is government. And mm. I think that um, I think that the the plans to to keep this industry afloat um, are are not coordinated. I also don't think that they're well informed, and I also don't think that they're realistic. Um, I do think that not everything is about providing loans. Um, and by the way, loans in and of themselves can be quite dangerous because loans have to be paid back. Sure. Um, and we, we can talk about all that. But I also think that there are there are some things that some really enlightened state, uh, as in the United States, is going to, to figure out that the taxation system as well as the legal system uh, and regulation system can address some of the ills. And I'll, I'll try to explain what I mean really quickly. Yeah. Um, I think we can all agree that um, there, there is a silver lining to the fact that restaurants have low margins. And that is that um, I've, I've compared the restaurant industry as, as being the earthworms of, you know, of our economy, the, the earthworm. I, I think 95% of what goes into an earthworm comes out the other end in a way that enriches the soil. And I think it's the same thing with restaurants. If, if restaurants are making a 5 or 10% margin, that means the rest of those dining dollars, besides the fact that hopefully they made people happy while they were being spent, but the rest of those dining dollars go right back into the economy. So now you take restaurants out of the economy, um, massive unemployment, all kinds of suppliers who are hurting like crazy. We're, we're hearing stories about you know, tomato growers uh, basically destroying all their tomatoes because they don't have a marketplace for them. Sure, right I mean, you saw you saw the dairy industry is destroying everything just just earlier this week, and Governor they, Cuomo said they, that he was going to start buying dairy to give to food banks, which makes so much sense. But before that, it's crazy. So I, I couldn't agree more. So now, now you have most states have what's called a payroll tax. In New York State, it hovers around ten percent which is a 10% disincentive to hire people back. Let's say that went away. Mm. Let's say instead of taking that tax on the front end, disincenting restaurants to hire people, that instead, let's say just for fun, there was a new regulation that said, um, we, we will eliminate your payroll tax when you see that, when we see that you have upped the hourly income for all of your workers, um, I happen to be a proponent of eliminating the adjusted minimum wage for for tipped employees. I think I think there should be one minimum wage for everybody. Um, what do you think that and, minimum wage should be? Well, I, I wouldn't start at below fifteen dollars an hour. Mm. Um, but but as of today, uh, 
you know, in, in at least half the states in the country, the adjusted minimum wage for tipped employees is $2.13. And it has been for ages. For ages, for ages. So I can imagine a situation where everybody makes the same amount. And by the way, if you want to tip, that's great. But let's get rid of this stupid law that says tips cannot be shared between uh, cooks and, and waiters. That's ridiculous. If, if, if you really think that the service was great, a lot of it may be because the cook was really good. You sure. know, it's not just the person who brought out your food. So I think that there are things that can be done at the state level that don't require, um, you know, creating a loan system or, or, or any, anything that, that if our industry does not address, we're just going it, to, it's, it's just going to get harder and harder and harder. And yeah, restaurants have been eliminating things, you know, okay, many restaurants have eliminated their pastry chef or they've eliminated linen from the table or they've, you know, there's just so much, there's so much cutting and there, at a certain point you can't cut anymore. Sure. Have you been sharing any of these ideas with, with politicians or, or people on the state level or the, or in DC? Um, yes, uh, to the best of my ability, but I will say that right now, um, people, I don't know what it's like to be in government right now. You're probably hearing it from all sides. It's got to happen quickly. The government is is behind, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'd like to talk about the uh, Payroll Protection Plan, the CARES Act. I would. Um, and if you don't, I will. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm so curious to hear your what you're talking about in terms of what would work. And I think what we're getting towards is what people have passed very quickly in Washington in order to stop the bleeding immediately, whether that works is is to be determined. I think what we're seeing so far is that the government funded this CARES Act to really get money into people's hands or try and get money into people's hands as quickly as possible. As part of this act, uh, the government, the Congress passed um, the payroll protection act. Uh, the payroll protection program. And what it was meant to do was it was meant to give small businesses loans that would be uh, forgivable if they hired back their employees by the end of June. There was a paragraph buried very deep in this very long, very complicated, very confusing bill. And the paragraph basically said, sure, this is meant to help people who have less than 500 employees. And I can't really think of a restaurant who has more than 500 employees. But if bigger companies like Shake Shack have individual branches that have fewer than 45 employees, they could qualify for getting these loans from the government. And that's what you guys applied for. Is that right? That is correct. So I understand why applying for the loan as Shake Shack doesn't violate the letter of the bill's requirements, right? But I do think that people got so angry that it violated the spirit of the legislation. Do you see how how that could be something that people took away from it? And how, and how. And, you know, that's why Shake Shack was the first, certainly the first public company and perhaps at least amongst the very first of any company to return its loans. Once we learned that the government had run out of money because there was no fine print anywhere in the bill that said, oh, and by the way, uh, if you get in line to try to save jobs uh, in your business, you will therefore be elbowing someone else out. 
because that's that's exactly how it felt to people. And we realized that the the, the very very day before, um, the day after Shake Shack received the loans, and the uh, was I think that was on a Wednesday, and on the Thursday the government announced that it had run out of money, and immediately uh, we went this sucks. This, this isn't right. And we started hearing all kinds of, of, you know, I think justifiable anger from a lot of different quarters. What's it like to be, I mean, I, I would imagine this is probably your first time you're in the center of an internet controversy or something that exploded online. I'm wondering what it felt like to be in the middle of that. Well, I think it made me immediately listen. You know, I've, I'm, I'm somebody who's introspective enough to to say, wait a second, that was so not part of our calculus that the government was going to run out of money. I, I want to just try to explain business, our industry, I don't care what size uh, business you're talking about, had the, had the bottom come out, you know, just fell out. No business in Shake Shack's case some business only because uh, Shake Shack made a decision to try like crazy in most locations to stay open and uh, and to try everything possible not to lay off dramatic numbers of people. So the calculus that you, you went through, uh, the calculus that I know we went through at Union Square Hospitality Group was, we don't know when this is going to be over. There's no map. Um, Oh my gosh, it looks like the government is doing thing number one, which is providing a, a, a package for laid off employees. That's a good thing. Oh my gosh, it looks like the government is also providing a loan uh, to, to try to help businesses if they will rehire people. That seems like a good thing. Let's learn as much as we possibly can about it. Um, do we qualify or not? If we do qualify, um, is this a wise thing to do for your business? Because if your business goes out of business, you will never be able to reemploy people. So that was a hundred percent of the calculus. I will be very, very clear that um, obviously, if if part of the large print, small print, or fine print had been, and by the way, you better line up now or you're going to be left. You'll be one of the 85% left out because we will not have adequately funded this. I would say, well, of course, a business like Shake Shack, uh, which, which proved that it has, as a public company, has means to uh, additional means of capital. Of course, they would not have applied at that point. But I think given the information they had, it was the right thing. And I would say, given the information they had on Friday, uh, the day after the government announced that it had run out of money, I think Shake Shack also did the right thing to say, guess what? We're not taking this. And, you know, one thing I feel good about is that as painful as it was to realize that uh, inadvertently we had elbowed out of the line, uh, you know, I, I wish... I wish I knew what was happening to the $10 million Shake Shack turned back. Um, although what I can tell you now is that since the day that uh, Shake Shack, it was uh, on a late Sunday night that Shake Shack announced it was returning the funds, I believe $2 billion of funds have been returned mm. subsequent to that. 
and not just from restaurants, but also from from other institutions, including some some well-known universities as well. We've been having this discussion in the country about the merits of small business, medium-sized business, large businesses. And I think that that's okay, but I, I think that, that no one seems to be having the conversation with respect to the, the fact that the payroll protection program does not fit all industries equally. So in the restaurant industry, the calculus is very, very different. If, if, if the loan is not forgivable unless you hire back your team by the end of June, and yet you cannot possibly hire your team back by the end of June, maybe even legally because in a state like New York, where the latest I've heard is that the soonest you can bring people back to work is May 15th. And, you know, that may, that may go later, but sure. you will not be having people going out to restaurants by June 15th or June 30th. You just won't. Now, I, I can tell you that it's challenging enough to, to make money in a restaurant if you're at 85 or 90% capacity in the sure. restaurant. The, the, I'm, I'm pretty much guessing that the scenario in which restaurants open will probably be, you know, taking out every other table, right. which makes it almost impossible to, to make money. But it certainly makes it uh, completely unlikely that people will be hired back. So the thing that I think government really, really needs to do with this plan, I, I can, Jay, I can make the case that that uh, it could be the most irresponsible thing in the world for a restaurant to actually apply for and get this PPP loan because you're on the hook. And if you're not back in business and, and it's not a handout, it is a loan. You're on the hook to pay back that loan. Um, true, you've got two years to do it, but if you can't get back in business, who cares if it's two years or five years or two days? So I think that that uh, the, the biggest thing government could do would be to look at an entire industry. In this case, I would I would advocate for having that loan repayable, whether you're a diner or the local bakery or the fancy restaurant in town that people celebrate their birthdays at, it doesn't matter. I would say you should you should be responsible if you're going to qualify for that loan for hiring back the preponderance of your team within six months of the day that your state or your city says it's legal to open your doors and be in business. Mm. Because if you the entire industry six months to get back up on their feet. I think they can do it. Now, let's not forget, no, very few people are talking about quite apart from, you know, the, the fears that many people will have of going out to eat. We're going to have quite a recession on our hands. Sure. And, you know, in the experience I've had, you know, whether it was 1987 or 1991 or 1997 or 2001, 2008, Recession alone brings a lot of restaurants to their knees. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
So how are people going to be able to pay this back in in the six month date that you're talking about? If you're if no one's going to be operating at close to full capacity, if diners are operating under limited budgets because they're feeling the the pinch of a recession, isn't six months also an unrealistic time frame? I think I think in the absence of other structural changes, you're probably right about that. The only the only glimmering hope, and you're starting to see this happen all over the country, is that. There are these green shoots of entrepreneurial ideas where restaurants are saying, you know what, maybe I didn't need, you know, five hosts to go with my two maitre d's or mm. maybe, and maybe, maybe we can actually make people happy delivering food to them and, and, or having curbside pickup where we, where we can grow our way back into this. But, but nothing I'm talking about, even all these green shoots come anywhere close to full employment as it was, you know, in early March. Sure. So I want to talk to you about the green shoots, but I want to just ask you one final question about the legislation and and what should happen. So if they don't listen to your advice and say that the loans should be repayable six months after their states say that it's okay to open and they continue to keep this deadline of June 30th or July 30th or August 30th, whatever it is for the next round, would you say that restaurants shouldn't apply for this loan? Well, you know, I I would never tell any other restaurant what they should or shouldn't do, but this is going to sound crazy. I could imagine a day where someone says, I'm really lucky we didn't get one of those loans. Mm. Did you did you take a loan for Union Square Hospitality? Yes, we absolutely applied for loans and uh, got them for many of our businesses, but not all. And and I, again, I think it was absolutely the responsible thing to do because it's the only. I do believe we will find a way to stay in business, and it's the only responsible way that I can feel like I can go from being an unemployer back to being an employer. Do you think you'll be able to hire people back by June thirtieth? No, I don't, and therefore it will be a a loan that we will be on the hook for. If if we were able to hire people back by June thirtieth, it becomes a forgivable loan. That will not happen. Uh, I I just don't see how that happens for our businesses. It just won't. So what will happen is you will end up being on the hook for paying that loan back because you would not have met this arbitrary deadline that is included in the legislation. That's great. So, uh, that's right. And so what that means is we will be rolling up our sleeves. Um, I don't think we've talked about this, but on March 13th, we had uh, 2,300 employees at Union Square Hospitality Group. Today, we have 75. Mm-hmm. And the 75 people who are working uh, with no revenues, there's no revenues in our company. And so 100% of what they're working on right now is to try to rebuild a business that took 35 years to build and, and basically has taken uh, seven weeks to tear apart. And, you know, we're going to do every single thing we can to come up with ideas to to recreate this in a way that we can continue to deliver hospitality experiences. Um, will they, you know, will some of those experiences change? Absolutely. In seven weeks, people have learned how to use their homes, how to use their kitchens. They've learned how to use Zoom um, and we're going to try to find any way we possibly can to to bring you what you came to us for until such time as you feel safe coming back to us. What are some of the things you've come up with so far? 
Well, we've come up with nothing so far because <laughs> every single time we've, you know, gotten to the point of saying this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous to have this much talent and these many kitchens and not be cooking food first for people who need it, you know, whether they're healthcare workers or, or hungry New Yorkers. But every time we've come close to asking people to go back into those kitchens, sadly, you know, some tragedy has, has occurred. We, we lost one of our cherished chefs, uh, former chef, Lloyd Cardoz, who was the chef of Tabla, died. Right. That brought our company to a grinding halt. Um, another one of our longtime chefs was hospitalized, mm. and that brought us to a halt. Uh, I, I will, I will be speaking to one of our longtime colleagues uh, this afternoon who has lost their uh, their uncle, their father, and uh, has a mother on a ventilator right now. Oh my god! And so each and every single time that we say, if we could only cook, just think what we could do, even without having you know full restaurants and full bars. Almost every single time, something like comes up, and I just go, "Yes, but not yet." Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, this is his. This has only been about survival, and it's first human survival, and then dealing with the business consequences of surviving because you you made it about human survival. Sure. I, one of the things I keep thinking about is this interim period. There will be a period before there's a vaccine, but after we are all sheltering in place. And I think it will come in fits and starts. I think we'll probably go in and out of some version of what we're doing right now until there is a vaccine. But in the periods where we're out of our houses and restaurants can legally open again, um, we will be at some sort of limited capacity. And I'm wondering, how do you taste food if your chefs are wearing a mask, how do you season food if your chefs are wearing gloves? If you're in a dining room and someone coughs because something went down the wrong pipe, how do you stop the whole restaurant from feeling the kind of fear that we feel leaving the house today? Well, I'm I'm with you 100% on that. And, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot is well, whoever wrote the rule that you have to open a compromised version of yourself, um, maybe the better thing to do is to um, is to come up with a different way of serving people uh, until it feels safe for people to come out. It, it just, you know, the notion of asking a waiter to clear somebody's napkin from a table, right? Um, or or the notion of you know, well, welcome to the restaurant, um, Jane. Let me take your temperature uh, through my mask. There's just something that doesn't feel satisfying about that. And so it doesn't one scream option, enlightened hospitality to me. It, exactly. And, and meanwhile, let's not forget that that the dining room is not going to have enough. The dining room that you will be coming into with your mask, which you will be required to wear on your way to the to the restroom, by the way. Uh, you'll be able to take it off to eat your pasta, but the dining room is going to be half empty, um, which means the restaurant will be losing money every day it's open, and and you will not be having the the social experience that you came for. So, look, it, you're absolutely right when you talk about fits and starts. This is uh, 
a very, very slow rheostat that's going to get turned on ever so slowly. And, you know, it could be that, you know, a restaurant that serves outdoors mm. is going to, is going to be able to get back in business more quickly. Or we have a business called Daily Provisions, uh, which does not rely upon reservations and does not rely upon how many people are sitting inside eating. Um, and maybe they'll be able to get back into business a little bit sooner. Right. And I also think businesses that can, that have the kind of products uh, that translate well to eating at home can, can do pretty well as well. Well, Shake Shack is obviously very well suited for this. That is something that, uh, I mean, I, I've, I have not yet been to a Shake Shack in this period, but I know many people who have, who have and, and the business pivoted to having curbside pickup very, very quickly. And I think people have been very happy with the product. That makes sense for something like Shake Shack. I don't necessarily see how that how that translates to Union Square Cafe or um, Mialino. And, and I think that's probably why you guys didn't set up a, a takeout delivery business immediately, right? Well, the primary reason was I just couldn't ask people to come to work and cook until sure. I felt that it was safe to do. Sure. Um, I think the minute, you know, if we had some type of test for antibodies or whatever, if, if we could get three people uh, who we knew uh, could cook food, you know, a limited number of things, maybe one or two or three items and, and feel safe coming into that kitchen, I would probably feel very, very good about having them, first cook for the community, learn how to do it again. Cause it's kind of like, you know, when, when, and if baseball ever comes back, they can't just play the games. They're going to have to have spring training. In sure. our case, we're going to actually have to re-recruit the team. It's yeah. going to be a long time before this happens. It's going to be a long time before this happens because you guys will have been shuttered for so long and you were going to have that ramp up period that you were just talking about. And it's going to take a long time. I think to get a vaccine. And and I think that once we are in a place where there is a vaccine, you then have a whole different set of questions. Who is able to survive this period of hibernation for 18 months or however long it takes to get a vaccine? Is it is it that New York City becomes a city of only Shake Shacks and banks and uh, Verizon wireless stores? Or are there are there ever able to be small independent restaurants that make the city what it is again? Or are we post that kind of restaurant scene? I think you'll get the cooking from some of the small restaurants and it, it will be via delivery and, and pickup. Mm. I, I don't think, I don't think you're going to be, you know, cheek to jowl people with people at a bar anymore. And I think that you're right. It's, um, you know, after 9-11, we already had the technology of, of metal detectors. They just had not been widely deployed. We don't have virus detectors as of this minute. And we also don't have, I mean, people are talking about thermometers and they're talking about other means of killing virus in the air, which I'll believe when I see it. I've, I've heard some hotels and I know the airlines are looking at it very, very carefully. But um it's just, it's just going to be a while and it's going to start with, I, I just know in my guts that it's going to start with employees feeling safe going back to work and then finding safe ways to deliver food out of our restaurants way before the, the public at large is going to feel excited about going out to eat in restaurants. I think, you know, 
after nine after nine eleven, uh, it took different people different amounts of time to feel comfortable getting back on an airplane, and, and I think we're going to be we'll be on the sadly we're going to be on the back end of this. I think that it, it is going to take time, and I'm wondering because everyone is stuck at home. Uh, cooking for themselves, isolated from most of their friends and extended family. Do you think that once there is a safe virus detection, that there is a vaccine, do you think tastes will have changed in diners? Do you think that what they're going to want out of their restaurants is going to be different? Probably. People, I think, they want simple, but they still want the hug. Mm. And... I think restaurants that I think you're going to see a lot of chefs put away their tweezers, you know, with all this silly mm-hmm. plating of all the little micro this and that's. Um, I, I think restaurants that know how to make a great roast chicken and a great bowl of pasta and a mm-hmm. good bottle of wine are going to do really well. I think you learn that, that really good food doesn't isn't good because it was fancy. And, mm-hmm. I, and I, so to your earlier question. I think that there's going to be a big de-emphasis on the, you know, the theatrical plating of fancy foods and just getting back to welcome. We see you. We know you. We're happy you're here. Let us take care of you. Um, that's what people are craving. Who's going to be able to afford to welcome people, though? That's my, my final question on on what this will look like is I agree with you that that's what people are going to want to feel and people are going to want to to go out to celebrate things and use restaurants the way that they use them. The the beauty of your restaurant, and I said this to you before we started recording, was that everything you did felt so celebratory. I, I can't tell you how many things I've celebrated in your restaurant. I know so many people who are listening to this have celebrated many things in your restaurants, and you want that. You can do that. You can do a version of that at home. You can do a version of that with a very small group of people who you're living with. But there's nothing better than walking into a buzzy restaurant that's noisy and you hear martinis being shaken and uh, waiters with a smile telling what the specials are. There's nothing more elegant and, and delicious than that kind of evening. And I think people will want that. But I don't know who's going to be able to afford to open that again. You are in a position where you've been incredibly successful and your restaurants have done very well. But there are there are a handful of yous. And so I'm wondering if a city's restaurant landscape looks like a handful of yous and then... Gee, I hope Shake not. Shake Shack. <laughs> Is the independent restaurant a viable thing in in four years from now? Yes. Um, restaurants are famous for for being turnover cha- uh, agents. Um, mm. Restaurants turn over, have always turned over at a very rapid pace. And someone always comes up with a new way to express it. Um, look at Brooklyn as an example. In mm-hmm. Brooklyn, if you if you ask someone... 15 years ago, where would you eat in Brooklyn? Probably the only answer for a full service restaurant would have been Peter Luger's Steakhouse. Sure. Right? Today, it's a whole city of entrepreneurial expressions of hospitality. And most of them are not big, expensive, fancy stage sets. And I think that, you know, assuming that landlords come to play um, and, and don't, and don't, you know, come up with unreasonable, impossible to meet rent structures. I think that the, the very, very kind of people who are attracted to being in the restaurant business will always find a way to express hospitality. Mm. And 
Will they be building um, temples of, of haute cuisine? Nope, not like they used to, that's for sure. Will they be building, you know, comfortable places where you can come feel recognized and have a night away in a social environment? Yes, that will not stop. Mm. Mm. I have one one last question for you. I want to know what the best thing you've been cooking at home is. Oh boy, so many things. So many things. <laughs> uh, I saw you maybe. tweet that you're obsessed with Ina Garten, and I couldn't agree more. She's been a big favorite in our house. I just um, Instagrammed a photo of a roast rack of pork that that Ooh. I made a couple nights ago. And um, our daughter makes pasta every single day. She's baking things. Our son is the cliche um, sourdough starter, baking loaf of bread every single night. Like um, everyone else. Can I adopt uh, your children? Um, it depends on the day. Uh, <laughs> the answer is yes. yes. But um, look, it's it's really been, it's been great. And the, you know, I kind of hope we're not here when, when we get to gardening season, because that means this thing really will have been extended. But we're getting close because uh, there's there's nothing like cooking stuff that you grew yourself, but it's still it's we're still not quite there yet. I'm I'm actually stuck in California, so our garden is in full bloom here. And I will say that if you are still stuck when everything starts to bloom, it is there's really nothing more satisfying than being able to go down and, and pick something that's growing. And in this time, it feels particularly satisfying. Well, I've enjoyed connecting with you. And I am just really grateful for your honesty and openness throughout all this. And I look forward to hopefully being able to celebrate in your restaurants not too far from now. Thank you to my guest, Danny Meyer, and of course, to my co-hosts, Joe Hagan and Nick Bilton. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can get these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their work producing this. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them the way you support this podcast. We'll see you next week. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.